preserving the history of Strategic Air Command, the Cold War, and aerospace artifacts. Welcome to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Coming to you from the museum just off I-80 at exit 426. Now here's your host, Museum Marketing Director, John Leffler, Jr. Well, hello. It has been a while. Welcome to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. I am Deputy Director John Leffler, Jr. Glad to be with you uh, here today to uh, have a, a little different conversation. We've got some special guests with us for a couple of events that we have going on, but uh, a little bit of public service as well that we'd like to, uh, to address today. But I do want to talk to you about those events first. October is a very busy month for us here at the museum uh, and Saturday, October 16th is uh, an extremely busy day. As you know, our cold war in film exhibit uh, opened last month and we are having a cold war film festival, which is coming up uh, on October 16th and the 17th. So we'll actually have uh, two days of, of films out here. In fact, uh, both days, uh, the films will start at 1230 on Saturday. We've got Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, followed by Failsafe. And then on Sunday, we have Strategic Air Command, which would make sense, a film from 1955. And then at 2.45, we'll wrap up our Cold War Film Festival with the Bedford Incident. And to kick off the Cold War Film Festival, we will have Dr. Sean Maloney, who is the author of Deconstructing Dr. Strangelove, The Secret History of Nuclear War Films. So he'll be discussing films uh, during or inspired by the Cold War, ranging from Dr. Strangelove to Failsafe. It's going to be a fantastic time. We'll actually get a little bit of a preview. We will visit with uh, Dr. Sean Maloney a little bit later on in this uh, edition of our podcast. But we kick things off with uh, the American Red Cross, the Nebraska-Iowa region community volunteer leader, Wason Dunn. Wason, how you doing? Doing very well. Good morning. Yeah, Wason, thanks so much for being a part of uh, the podcast today. Now, we have you guys on um, because you will be a part of our Monster Mash event, which is kind of a show and shine. We've got folks bringing their uh, vehicles out, getting them decorated for the Halloween holiday. We've got a lot of fun stuff for the kids. But something that we always include with the um, with, with the uh, Monster Mash is a visit from our Nebraska-Iowa region American Red Cross. They have you guys out here. It's an opportunity for folks to donate blood. And originally... We were planning on visiting with Josh Murray, who's the regional communications director for you guys. But we we got him. Uh, we got you instead because he's down in Louisiana. What's that all about? Well, one of the things that the Red Cross does that many people may not be aware of is that we have a congressional charter uh, and we are federally mandated and authorized to be co-leads with uh, FEMA, with the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, to provide disaster relief. So uh, when there is a disaster, uh, such as what has happened down in Louisiana, whether it be flooding or hurricanes or here in the Midwest, tornadoes, uh, the Red Cross is there to provide uh, the mass care, the feeding, the sheltering, uh, and the emotional support to people who have been affected by that disaster. And part of providing that uh, is there's a huge infrastructure with the Red Cross. Uh, Josh, who you referred to, uh, is our communications director. So he is actually down in Louisiana now, uh, helping uh, get the Red Cross message out, helping to coordinate communications with the people uh, affected by the disaster so that they will have up-to-date information and know where they can go to get help. You know, and, and it's interesting, you know, we live in a day and age now where the news cycle, you know, it's a 24 hour news cycle and everybody was talking about Louisiana and Hurricane Ida and it, it happened. And, and it's sad to say, but, you know, just listening to you describe just the, the broad nature of, of work and effort that's put in by the American Red Cross, so many people have kind of moved on from that bit of news you guys are still in it. I, it's uh, is that hard? I mean, I, I, I guess kind of stepping back for a moment and 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 
you know, when, when you think about it, the amount of work and, and the sacrifice and what's being put in, is it kind of hard sometimes to, to think about that, you know, kind of the rest of the country has moved on, it feels like sometimes? You know, that's a great question. And, and uh, yes, sometimes uh, it can be, but, but I'll tell you, when you're involved with a disaster relief operation, your focus is on the people there in front of you and on providing the services and the care. Uh, and really, uh, almost everything else becomes a distraction. I will tell you, when you're when you're involved in the disaster release opera- relief operation, rather, uh, your focus is 100% on on providing the care to the people. Uh, you know, the Red Cross likes to say that you know we we will be there and stay there as long as we're needed, and and that's always been the case, whether that's a local disaster uh, or a national disaster. Uh, you know, one of the most frequent disasters that the Red Cross responds to is actually a home fire. There is a home fire somewhere in the United States roughly every seven seconds. Wow. Uh, and the Red Cross responds to those as well as to the major events like hurricanes and tornadoes. So if somebody has a home fire and they find themselves on the street, you know, in their uh, in their night clothes, uh, the Red Cross will be there to help them. We'll, we will be there to help them find a temporary shelter. Uh, we can provide limited financial assistance, the emotional support, uh, and help them uh, get through their own personal disaster. You know, it's it- interesting that you bring that up because sometimes uh, the the American Red Cross, a, a lot of what you see is when they're responding to those those disasters. And in, not to minimize what is a disaster, you know, what's a bigger disaster than another, because if you've just lost your house to a fire, that's potentially the biggest disaster that you've ever had to deal with in your life. And, you know, it, it just from the description of what, you know, Josh, your, your colleague is doing down in Louisiana, you're talking about, you know, res- with there being a house fire in this country every seven seconds and the, and the red American red cross responding and, and providing support during those times. I mean, this is a 24 seven operation. It is very much so. Uh, And the Red Cross has people that are available uh, 24-7. You know, one of the important things to note about the Red Cross is that approximately 90% of the Red Cross workforce are volunteers, such as myself. Uh, So the vast majority of the people that are out there providing the service, the support, and the disaster relief are people who are doing so out of a humanitarian spirit, out of the goodness of their heart. And the Red Cross uh, really does more than just disasters. You know, people, when most people think of the Red Cross, they think of blood or flood. They think of the blood donations, the blood drives, right. Or they think of the Red Cross responding during floods. And certainly those are two very important uh, things that we do and and take a lot of our time and resources. Uh, But in addition to that, uh, the Red Cross uh, provides support for military and their families. We have a, uh, one of our um, lines of service, is service to the armed forces. We are the only organization that is able to connect service members and their families at home during times of disaster. We also provide support for the families of deployed service members. Uh, we provide the emotional care. We provide uh, um, you know, other forms of support. Uh, and when uh, military members come back from their deployments, we actually help provide reunification services to help everybody get reoriented back to having uh, you know, the, the, the whole family intact, because that actually can be somewhat traumatic as well if somebody's been gone for months or, or, or years. Um, in addition to service to the armed forces, uh, we also provide uh, health, safety, and education training, You know, everything from first aid training to a CPR, cardiopulmonary pulmonary resuscitation, uh, how to use an AED. We have all sorts of different types of training that the Red Cross provides. And then finally, we are part of the International Red Cross. We are a member agency of that. So during times of international disaster, we can help people uh, reunify with their families. So if somebody here in the United States has family members in another country affected by a disaster. The Red Cross is the organization that can help them get information, help them uh, restore their family links with those people. Yeah, we're visiting with community volunteer leader, Wason Dunn. Uh, Wason, you you talked a lot about the the, the support that you provide uh, for the members of our armed forces. Obviously, the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum, you know, our mission is preserving 
um, the history, the heritage of Strategic Air Command, uh, of the Cold War. And when I'm sitting here in the large conference room and we're doing this podcast and I look out into Hangar A and I can immediately pick up, you know, three different aircraft that were prominent in three different conflicts that uh, our U.S. Um, armed forces have been a part of. I- I'm curious, just the the large volunteer base that you have for the American Red Cross, yourself included, how did you, how did that humanitarian spirit get, I mean, I'm not saying that it hit you when you, you know, at just one point in your life, but how did that humanitarian spirit for you drive you towards becoming a part of the American Red Cross? You know, everybody has their Red Cross story. Um, Some people uh, are motivated to uh, join and volunteer with the Red Cross because they themselves or somebody they know received help. Uh, As an example, I know one of our paid staff members became interested in the Red Cross uh, many, many years ago uh, when his mother received life-saving blood transfusions. And that got him to thinking about, wow, what's this organization that does that? In my own case, Um, I actually uh, first volunteered for the Red Cross uh, many, many years ago when I was a college student. Uh, I volunteered as a first aid and CPR instructor, uh, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, And I also um, was part of the first disaster action team. This was in another state, but again, I was in college. Uh, And the disaster action team are the people that sign up for shifts and respond uh, during disasters. And I did that as part of being a volunteer firefighter back in the day. So um, in the intervening years after I graduated from college, I had a long federal career. Uh, I served as a special agent of the FBI and uh, ended my career as the agent in charge of the FBI for all of Nebraska and Iowa. And when I retired after 30 years uh, in law enforcement, I was looking for something to do uh, on a volunteer basis where I could continue to serve the community because after a 30 year career of public service, it's hard to just walk away from that. Yeah. So, um, you know, remembering my, uh, the, how much I enjoyed the red cross back in, um, my college days, uh, I started volunteering again, initially as a member of the disaster action team here locally. Uh, yeah, I signed up for shifts and responded to house fires in the middle of the night and the like. Um, but as I became more experienced with the Red Cross as it is now, uh, I realized that I could probably contribute more uh, by uh, serving as part of their government operations and government liaison team, which is what I do. So I help the Red Cross uh, build and maintain partnerships with a variety of government agencies at uh, local, state, and federal level to make sure that we are collectively prepared to to respond when our communities are affected by disaster. And then I also help out with uh, public affairs, which is uh, why I'm with you here today, uh, (laughs) because I I, I help help Josh out when uh, he's not available to handle media interviews and other types of um, public affairs matters. Well, with all due respect to Josh, uh, I didn't realize that you are a former member of the FBI. So this is way cooler for me right now <laughs> to, to have you on, <laughs> to have you on here. And we're going to have to set up a separate podcast just for me to ask questions about your, uh, well, with, I guess what you can share uh, with me from your, your time uh, in the uh, FBI. But that actually raises a, another uh, a question with, with your background as um, ultimately the agent in charge of the FBI here in Nebraska, working with that organization and then now your, um, you know, heavy involvement in the American Red Cross, similarities between how the organizations are run or were they so uh, diametrically opposed in how they operate that maybe that was kind of a nice sort of relief for you? You know, there are both. Uh, first of all, both are very iconic organizations, and that yeah. has both benefits as, w- as well as some liabilities. Um, you know, the benefit, of course, is uh, people recognize the name, and, and the Red Cross is probably one of the most recognized and highly regarded uh, nonprofit uh, agencies in the world. Uh, pretty much everybody anywhere in the world knows what the Red Cross does, and, and the same with the FBI. Um, as far as how the organizations function, you know, they are both large organizations. They both have a certain amount of bureaucracy. But I think one of the biggest changes is uh, the American Red Cross being a 90% volunteer 
uh, you know, you have to approach almost every task entirely differently because uh, you have to remember that the people are there because they want to be and, and they're there out of the goodness of their heart. Uh, you know, they're not being paid to do what they do. So it, it does create a very different dynamic. But at the same time, I think it's, it can be a very heartwarming dynamic when you're working with a bunch of other volunteers like minded and you're all focused on providing help to people during times of disaster. Yeah, you know, I've always felt that with volunteers, if you're not organized and if you don't have a clear objective for them, um, you're going to lose your volunteers very quickly because they didn't volunteer to stand around. They volunteered to help. So uh, that's one thing with the American Red Cross. I'm sure there's no shortage of things for folks to do. Well, absolutely. Uh, and, and the other thing that makes it uh, really, for me, rewarding is you, you have people from all walks of life. Um, I mean, there are some other former law enforcement, other prior military people that, you know, had a, had a similar career as mine. But we also have uh, everything from uh, social workers, uh, members of the clergy, uh, people who were formerly nurses or physicians, um, business owners, lawyers, you name it. I mean, people come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, and as a result, they have very, very different approaches toward things, but we all share in that humanitarian spirit, uh, and that desire to help others in times of need. Well, you know, visiting with, uh, community volunteer leader, Wason Dunn, uh, with the American Red Cross and speaking of helping people, um, the, really the, the main reason why we're having this conversation today is that we're teaming up with the American Red Cross at an event we have coming up later this month. Saturday, October 30th is our annual Monster Mash. It's our show and shine with a lot of fun cars uh, parked throughout the museum. We've got activities for the kids and we also have the Nebraska-Iowa region of the American Red Cross here for blood donations. Now, you can go on our website, sacmuseum.org, right now under events where you'll find the Monster Mash. You can sign up for um, a time to donate blood. What are the blood types right now that are in most need, Wason? Well, we need all uh, blood types, but some are rarer than others, and some are probably uh, needed greater than others. Um, let me start by saying, first of all, uh, blood donations are, are vital, uh, particularly now, because as everybody knows, we're, we're still working our way through a, a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic. Uh, and the thing to remember about blood and blood donations is that medical emergencies and medical conditions that require uh, donated blood don't stop for a pandemic. They don't stop for the holidays. It doesn't matter what the season is. Um, you know, there's always going to be a need for uh, emergency blood transfusions, either because of surgery, because of an accident, you know, some illness. Um, in fact, uh, in this country, in the United States, every two to three seconds, somebody in the country needs blood. And the other thing that a lot of people are surprised to hear is that just one pint of donated blood can potentially help save three people's lives. So every time somebody donates a pint of blood, they can be satisfied in knowing that they have potentially helped save three people's lives. As far as blood types go, there are really four types. Um, you have um, A, uh, you have B, you have O, and then you have AB. Uh, without getting into a lot of technical detail, each of those blood types is unique and they're not interchangeable with some exceptions. And this is where, in answer to your, your question, what is the most needed type of blood? Um, that is actually type O. And the reason is type O blood can be used in transfusions for any other blood type. That's not true for the other two. So there's A, B, A, B, and O. Uh, o is the one that anybody can accept. And because of that, it is routinely in short supply and in the greatest demand because it is the most uh, easily transfused blood type. Um, many people refer to type O as the universal blood type because it can be used for, for pretty much anybody. Um, approximately 45% of Caucasians are type O and approximately 51% of African-American uh, are type O. And then approximately 50% of uh, people of Hispanic heritage are type O. So um, that's it. it's in great demand. So that's the blood type that we most need, but all blood types are needed. 
So the the next question then is there's someone uh, listening, I may or may not be talking about myself right now, that is saying, okay, so so Wason's telling me the American Cross, American Red Cross needs type O, but really they need all types of blood. I, you know what? I don't even know what blood type I am. How do you find that out? You can find out your blood type several ways. First of all, uh, if you um, sign up and, and donate blood with a Red Cross, they will let you know what your blood type is. They will be able to test that and let you know. Uh, you can also, anytime you have a, uh, a physical, you know, with your doctor uh, or, or other healthcare provider, uh, they also should be able to type your blood uh, if they uh, do a blood draw as part of that physical. Uh, and those who have had military service uh, will probably already know their blood types, but that mm -hmm. is usually in your military records as well. Okay, so really, uh, bottom line, you can come in Saturday, October 30th, donate blood, and then walk out of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum knowing what your blood type is, or is that something they'll get to you later? They'll get to you later. You wouldn't necessarily be told right there on the spot, but but you'll but they won't be able to do the testing on the spot. But they will be able to let you know down the line, so that when you, when you come back to donate blood again, you know exactly what it is you're able to provide. Now that donation with the uh, the blood uh, uh, donation that you'll be able to do with the American Red Cross Nebraska Iowa region that is coming up on Saturday, October 30th here at the museum. We'll have a room set up um, for you to come in and do that. We do ask though that uh, you make every effort to schedule a time so that the the staff uh, from the American Red Cross is able to uh, get you in in a timely fashion, get everything taken care of. That link is available to you when you visit the Monster Mash event page. You'll be able to sign up for a time between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. on Saturday, October 30th to help out all blood types are needed all the time but if you are type o and you uh, want to come help out that is definitely uh one of the blood types that is needed uh, more than others right now just because of as you said it's sort of the the one that for transfusions can be used for any blood type correct correct you know the other thing i would like to emphasize uh, because we are still working our way through a pandemic is that uh, donating blood and blood drives are absolutely safe. Uh, first of all, they have always been conducted under the highest uh, sanitation and cleanliness standards. Uh, but more importantly than that, um, you know, donated, donating blood, there is no way you can um, catch COVID through blood donation. Some people ask that and no, that is, that is not an issue. Uh, the, the COVID is a uh, airborne disease. Uh, it's a respiratory disease. Uh, there has never been any COVID transmitted as a result of blood transfusion uh, or, or donating blood. Um, the other thing that I, I think is to me was very important is that uh, blood donation is actually deemed an essential service and it's considered to be part of the national critical infrastructure by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, that's because uh, blood products are so vital to healthcare, particularly during times uh, of disasters uh, and other emergencies. Uh, and also, uh, the U.S. Surgeon General uh, and the, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, they have all issued statements encouraging people to donate blood, even though we are still in a pandemic. You know, it's interesting. I, I saw a commercial on television the other day, um, you know, encouraging folks to not forget about getting their cancer screenings. This pandemic, in a lot of ways, has consumed people's minds when it comes to uh, their their health and just general health issues. And there's so many other initiatives that need to continue pressing forward. And one of the most important ones, I think you we could say, is obviously the uh, blood donations. So we're very excited to have the American Red Cross, the Nebraska-Iowa region, here with us Saturday, October 30th, our Monster Mash event. It's our annual event that we have, and we always have that blood donation uh, set up for you. So if you would like to come and donate blood, and we hope you do, uh, you can visit our website, sacmuseum.org. Sign up for your time to come and donate blood. Community volunteer leader with the American Red Cross, Nebraska-Iowa region, Wason Dunn, joining us today. Wason, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure to, to join you. All right. Take care. Visit us online at sacmuseum.org. More of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast 
coming up. When you become a member of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum, not only do you enjoy unlimited admission to our world-class aircraft and aerospace museum, you help us preserve aviation history for generations, restore aircraft, create new exhibits, and educate youth in our wide variety of programs focused on science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Memberships are available for individuals, family, school teachers, and military. With your membership funds, you enable the museum to continue to grow and further its mission. Learn more about becoming a member of the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org. Stay up to date with museum news and events. Sign up at sacmuseum.org for Flight Log, the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum e-newsletter. Back to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Welcome back to the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. I am John Leffler, joined now by our curator, Brian York. Brian, hello. Hey, John. Long time no see. Yeah, I know. I was mentioning at the uh, at the top of this podcast, it's been a while since we've done one of these. Not because we've lost interest. We just have a lot going on here at the museum. And um, before I have you jump across the table and smack me, you've got more going on than anybody uh, in this in this museum right now with the uh, the recent opening of uh, our latest exhibit Cold War in Film and I know that for myself and for a lot of the staff and the volunteers very excited about this exhibit one of the I mean there's obviously lots of fascinating uh history to to experience and be a part of when you when you come to the museum but this is really a fun exhibit um you know, I know for you, it's always a work in progress. Every Everything with every exhibit for you is always a work in progress, but you have to feel pretty good about what you've put out there. I know we're really excited about it. Uh, this was a really fun exhibit to work on. One is I love movies, um, and I'm a kid of the Cold War. So I, I get to put those two things together, and one, I obviously got some of my favorites in there, but... I worked with the staff and volunteers and everything, and I got some great input from so many people. And to basically take this to the public to say, you know, this is how impactful the Cold War was during that time, but also since then. So it's been a lot of fun. Do you think as a, you're the curator of the museum, but you're, you are also an educator, you're a teacher, you're, you're preserving the history, the heritage of the Cold War, of Strategic Air Command for this museum. Do you feel in some ways maybe this will help your mission as curator uh, presenting the history of the Cold War using all of this media? Well, it definitely helps. One is it, it, what we usually try to do with our exhibits is we try to make it intergenerational mm -hmm. because we have parents and grandparents that come out here who grew up during the Cold War, may have served during the Cold War, and it's very, very hard to kind of relate that experience to their kids or grandchildren. Film is a great way to do that because you can start talking about uh, on a very, very casual sense of uh, watching war games. Yes, when we saw this, everybody got worried that some kid out in Washington is going to start World War III and there's nothing we can do about it. I don't know how, I mean, Matthew Broderick, I, I don't know, I, I wasn't convinced at first, but yeah, I did start to get worried. Well, it's all Alex Sheedy's fault. But. <laughs> Speaking of films, um, in addition to the Cold War and Film exhibit, we have a Cold War Film Festival. Very excited about this. It's happening the weekend of Saturday and Sunday, October 16th and 17th here at the museum in our theater. Um, on Saturday the 16th at 1230, we'll have a showing of Dr. Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. That's from uh, 1964. And then following that, we'll have a showing of Failsafe, uh, a film from 1964. That'll be at 215. And then the following day, Sunday, October 17th, we'll kick things off again with Strategic Air Command from 1955. That will be showing at 1230. And then at 245, The Bedford Incident, a film from 1965. So those are the four films we will be showing for the Cold War Film Festival, October 16th and 17th. You can learn more about that at sacmuseum.org. But we are very excited because the day before, the, the first day of the film festival, October 16th, we will have a very special guest to kick off our uh, film festival. He's a professor of history at the Royal Military College of Canada. 
and served as the historical advisor to the chief of the land staff during the war in Afghanistan, among other many, many other things. Uh, we are joined now by author, professor, and um, someone that's going to get us schooled on these Cold War films, Dr. Sean Maloney. How are you, sir? Excellent. Thanks for the invite. Looking forward to this already. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you being a part of it. Now, for our podcast, we, um, we always do this as an audio, um, I guess, you know, media. We don't really worry about doing the video or anything like that. What I can tell people that are listening is that we obviously want to be able to look at each other when we're talking. It makes it a lot more fun. And I'm looking at the office or the space that you're in right now with tons and tons and tons of books in the background. And I'm just, I'm just curious, looking at this, how many of these have you actually read? I'd say most of them. Uh, yeah, that that was the answer I thought that we were going to get. That's incredible. How did you how did you come about um, getting into writing a book about effectively deconstructing the Cold War and kind of not necessarily going after these films, but sort of breaking it down for people? Because as I mentioned to Brian, I think this is one way to really engage people in learning, whether they realize it or not, learning about the Cold War and how it affected this country and internationally for that matter. Well, one of the things I ran into, this is a bit of a backstory here. I worked on Afghanistan for about 15 years. Uh, but before that, I was doing Cold War history. But in that intervening period, uh, when, that, when I, my involvement in that conflict ended, um, I went back teaching. And I had to basically get caught up on almost 15 years of uh, historiography, i.e. the history of history, what people have been writing about it. And again, I started teaching new courses I created at the college to a much younger audience who were who view the Cold War like we would view the First World War or the Second World War in terms of time, right? And so a lot of them were falling back on films to educate themselves and clips on YouTube. And I, I, would, I would get these strange questions in some of the classes. And I realized that the basis for this was this idea that movies like Dr. Strangelove were becoming quasi-documentaries. Okay. And so I thought, wait a minute, let's, let's take another look at this. And it's all good. We mean, we, we love the, we love the film and we get the context of it and all that. When you're dealing with a younger audience, they don't necessarily have that. So I thought, well, you know what, let's take a look at this. Let's go back in and say, okay, what, what was real? What wasn't, what's exaggerated? What isn't? And uh, the cluster of films that wind up in the book leading with strange love. Um, that, that's what led me to, to write the book. Yeah. Uh, actually, that was my first question is what inspired you to, to write that. But I guess looking at all that, uh, what you're talking about uh, is educating. Uh, what, I guess, was there anything in Dr. Strangelove that jumps out at you that was really close to reality? Well, uh, when you start looking at the release procedures on the aircraft, those are, those are fairly close to them, not exact. Um, the, there's, there's all sorts of things sprinkled through it that are close to reality, but twisted slightly for comedic effect or otherwise. So, uh, but that particularly, the idea of airborne alert as being a centerpiece of deterrence, that was absolutely, it, it's depictions kind of, again, skewed a little bit, but the idea is there. Um, the mentality amongst some of the people, we could debate that. Uh, but those, those are things I would point to specifically. The other, the other thing I add to that, is this idea of tension. Whenever something happens, when you wind up having a crisis, it's not like quite like today. Back then, it really, it, it could go the distance depending, and none of us know exactly where those lines are. So I think when we're looking at the film, it captures that kind of tension. Mm -hmm. and I think that's important because you'll see that in real life, including some of the uh, crises that people don't even know about. So of all the films that, that are in your book, which... If you were going to point to, say, someone from a younger generation, that any one of those films that you would say would be a, a good jumping off point to exploring the history uh, of the Cold War, wh which one would it be if they could only watch one? Oh, man. That, if I, they could only watch one, that's hard because the four that you've got in the film festival would be the four that I would pick. So it, let's just say something breaks down in the theater and we can only show one. <laughs> I, I guess this is, this is more of an operations question at this point. Which one are we showing? <laughs> I'd go for Strangelove. Yeah, absolutely. Why, why is that? 
I mean, of the four we have, because I mean, you know, someone might be listening and saying, well, I, th I thought I heard you just mention Strategic Air Command. Why wouldn't it be Strategic Air Command or the, or the Bedford incident? Failsafe, for that matter. We want to encapsulate the Cold War and the essence of the Cold War. And the essence of the Cold War is crises with a nuclear dimension to it. And in the and there is um, there, there tends to be an absurdity of, oh, my God, we could like wipe the entire planet out, which that could have happened back then. Not quite the same way now. The idea that this could be all over and it's, it could be all over. And I think at one point um, people referred to it as a one cigar war. The <laughs> May working through one cigar would be uh, and basically an hour with 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 uh, ballistic missiles, 30 minute flight time, you could have it all over and done with. So there's this mental, cog there's this cognitive dissonance that, okay, this could be over like and before we even know it. And that was, that was very true throughout parts of the Cold War. So I think in terms of, of capturing the, 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 the psyche of it, I think that one probably does it the best. Visiting with Dr. Sean Maloney, who is going to be joining us October 16th, uh, our special guest talking about his book, uh, Deconstructing Dr. Strangelove, The Secret History of Nuclear War Films. So it'll be a chance for you, if you visit with us for the Cold War Film Festival on Saturday, October 16th, to uh, hear about those uh, films uh, that were made during or were inspired by the Cold War uh, Dr. Strangelove being that primary one, but also uh, Failsafe. I want to jump ahead, though, really quickly, um, Sean, and ask you a little bit about what you've had going on since 2001. Um, you've been focusing nearly exclusively on the war against the Al-Qaeda uh, Al movement and its allies, particularly on the Afghanistan component of that war. And now, with everything that has happened here within the past couple of months, I'm just curious, where is your, I, I know you're coming down to talk to us about Cold War films, but where has your focus been as of late? Well, actually, I, I shifted back to, I'm working on a, th a third book in the sort of nuke trilogy. There's the Strangelove book, there's Emergency War Plan, which is the reconstruction uh, of nuclear plans in the 50s. The one I'm working on right now is the Soviet flip side of this. My wife and I were in Ukraine doing research before COVID hit. Um, so I was starting to work on that, and a, that's when the operations in Afghanistan started, and what the Canadian component was called Operation Aegis, and I, was, uh, I wound up playing a role in that for about two and a half months. Um, so that, at this point, I'm still half on sabbatical, and I got to get back to the, the Soviet nuke book. There's a lot of surprising stuff in there, too. Um, and I, actually, I want to touch on that, but I was going to talk, ask you first, um, looking at... Uh, all the Cold War films, you've got, you know, the, you got, you know, some stuff from the 50s, which is uh, more atomic type uh, scenarios. But looking at the Cold War films of the 60s, 70s and 80s, how do you think they're compared to stuff that's coming out now? I guess example is Bridge of Spies, 13 Days. Uh, how do you feel it compares with those after the fact? Oh, uh, I think that the, the films we're dealing with, that these days, like The Courier, Bridge of Spies, all that, those, those films have a lot more, they have access to a lot more research. They, have, they are able to, to distill and draw on like 30 years of post-Cold War research. Whereas when you're dealing with the early films, you're dealing, the films are all based off of novels and the novels are all written by people, none of them are written by people who are in the know. So they're trying to extrapolate from open source what they think is going to happen. And then that gets translated in various ways into the film. But that's not the same as taking, uh, say, Bridge of Spies and go, being able to reproduce uh, a, U, a U-2 flight uh, the way it is or the specifics of the exchanges and that kind of thing. So, uh, And then in the middle of that, you've got an interesting movie called By Dawn's Early Light that came out in the late 80s, which actually is really, really, really good, um, based on a novel by Jurgen Proshnow, who's unfortunately now dead. Um, but he had done significant research for the novel, which does translate fairly well into the movie. So we're, we're dealing with better information now, looking back at it, obviously. And so I'm hoping that we can see more films uh, come out in the future, dealing with some of the other aspects of the Cold War, nuclear aspects of the Cold War that uh, uh, have better information or, or better, have more research and more consideration.
Right. And, and I agree that uh, they're definitely uh, getting deeper and deeper into the details and they have more accurate information. Um, what is your feeling as far as are they capturing that essence, though, um, that we get in something like Failsafe or even Dr. Strangelove? I, I don't think the, they don't capture the sort of impending doom vibe, for want of a better way of putting it. And I think that's part of the, the issue is we grew up with that. Even when we were growing up in the 80s, we we're getting bombarded with the day after threads, okay? Uh, even Hunt for October. Um, but we, we, were, we grew up with that. I mean, I'm assuming we're all born in the late 60s here. Uh, even in Canada, with the Tesla sirens here every Wednesday at 1300 even in, in the 1970s. So, and I knew people, like my dad was involved in some of the civil, what we would call, what you guys called civil defense, we call emergency measures. But, you know, so we grew up with that. And we, we grew up with that idea that we, it could all be over in an hour. Mm-hmm. We haven't been in that headspace since the, at least the early nineties. Yeah. And now, uh, given what's going on today, we've got a we've got a real problem here. Okay. The the yields of the weapons are much lower, but they're more accurate. And with hypersonic weapons, you're talking what Mach twenty five. Yeah. Okay. So we're 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 starting to we are spooling up to the nineteen fifties again in some ways. It's 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 kind of strange. Well, the, the, you know, and I'm glad you bring that up because. It, would you say that the, the 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 Cold War was won by the U.S.? The, you know, there's there's that is it, it, that part of the Cold War, but whether your your words or or your belief, or others' belief that, that there is still a secret Cold War happening, and it's with China. And I'm just curious, from your perspective, you're talking about things sort of spooling back up to the 1950s. They are. We've actually, I've, I've been part of the, looking at this over the past two years up here in conjunction with our allies. So yeah, there's, we're, it's not even covert anymore. They're, they're, the Chinese are playing games against Taiwan with increasing numbers of aircraft. Mm-hmm. You're seeing tests of exotic Soviet nuclear systems that are in fact seem to be based on 1950s designs. Okay. There's all sorts of weird things like this happening, but when they ramp up over 100,000 troops and, and stage them into uh, pr- prepare to invade Ukraine and back off, we haven't seen anything quite like that since the Cold War. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And, and that's, that's part of the problem. Uh, when they start playing games in Belarus and Latvia, Lithuania, we're, we're back to that. And there's fawn ops games going on in the Black Sea. Canadian and U.S. ships are part of, have been part of those kind of operations. There's ferret operations again. You can watch it on ADSB when the aircraft squawk. So we're we're this we're we're back to those levels of uh, uh, intelligence gathering that had been had basically been dormant for at least the 1990s and early, into the early 2000s. So, in your view, where in your view, where is this headed? Where this is headed is is we got to learn from the past to make sure that we create the best possible deterrent system to make sure that it doesn't escalate like it had in the past and the only way we're going to do that is by understanding the history properly not through the lens of uh of people that just wish it wasn't there okay or or, or pretending that the that we're in a we're in an era that uh, is is less risky and that's that's my view on it i mean we we really need to figure out how did deterrent deterrence really work there are people out there in academia that believe that deterrence you can't prove that deterrence worked or not I encountered that in graduate school. Okay, so how if you're gonna if you got people saying, well, you can't prove deterrence works, therefore don't spend any resources on it. How do you make an argument to those people, right? And if, those, if that's a predominant argument out there, that's a very dangerous one in my view, given what we know now uh, is going on in China. Visiting with Dr. Sean Maloney, professor of history at the Royal Military College of Canada. Also served as the historical advisor to the chief of the land staff during the war in Afghanistan. And something else that I wanted to mention, you previously served as the historian for four Canadian uh, mechanized brigade, the Canadian Army's primary Cold War NATO uh, commitment after the reunification of Germany and at the start of Canada's long involvement in the Balkans. What, is, what has been your involvement with, with that research and, and, and the work that you've been doing there? Back then, I right right as the Cold War ended, I deployed to Germany to be the to, to write the history of what Canada was involved in in, uh, in NATO, 
And our involvement in NATO was pretty extensive for a relatively small country, including nuclear strike aircraft, among other things. So in that, at the end of the Cold War, you could, you could I was given access to everything I needed. And I mean, everything, nuclear planning um, and the whole bit. And you could see uh, the deterrent mechanism created within NATO and the various permutations it took and how it shifted to come to grips with the Soviet threat. And that was the basis of some of the work that uh, my very earliest work. I mean, I was 23 at the time. Um, and I was able to prowl around the collapsed Warsaw Pact and take a look at it and talk to people there. And I was, I, the Germans were doing what we call DOCX now, document exploitation. The Germans had, were scooping up uh, Warsaw Pact plans and uh, that sort of thing. I had access to that. So it was pretty fascinating. We were able to see how, or at least get an early idea of how, a deter how the deterrent worked, what they were afraid of, what they were thinking about doing. And of course, why they didn't do it becomes another question that we, we can still argue about. But that's how I got started in this, uh, right, right from the get-go. Uh, now, Sean, uh, we were talking earlier and you were talking about your next project that you're working on, <clears throat> uh, looking at, kind of looking at the Cold War a little bit from the other side, from the Soviet side and their deterrence. And I, I guess just kind of a little preview. I mean, what have you, what have you uncovered? I, did they have anything on the level that we had? Well, it, they started off small, obviously, and then they expand very, very rapidly. But it's it's the nature they their their system does not uh, correspond or replicate ours in any way. Okay, so they don't have a word for deterrence. Hmm. There's no doctrinal term for deterrence that I can, that we can see. They have a word and it means certain things, but it does not mean the same thing that we've got. Right. So their ideas of how they're going to employ the weapons are very different from the way we would look at it. Well, now, now I want to know what that word is. <laughs> exactly, a couple of them. In case I ever hear it. <laughs> it, it it's it, it's really interesting because the really, in my view, the really dangerous period is probably under Khrushchev. And I started doing work uh, as I so I started working on this and trying to figure out when they had what system at what time and how they were thinking about using it. Um, that's the early stuff that I've been doing, but it's, it's astounding how rapidly they build up. And that's directly as a result of espionage penetration of Can Canadian, US and British nuclear programs. And I can track it using Russian documents now. But this is, here's one for you that's really fascinating. So the, there's a lot of American literature debating about the decision to build the hydrogen bomb under Truman, right? And there's, there's a lot of people debate this back and forth, good idea, bad idea, et cetera. And then Truman makes the decision in 1950. Well, what year does Stalin decide to build a hydrogen bomb? Ni 1947. Mm -hmm. So he's already, he's already, they've already initiated a program to build a hydrogen bomb three years before the US does. And they'll actually test a weapon that's, that, that has limited capabilities, but it arguably is the first hydrogen bomb. Um, and then the U.S. will test a large, very large two-stage device and then move on from there. But then you look at when does Stalin decide to go for an ICBM? 1947. Okay, so and we're, it, there's, these ideas exist in the U.S. at the time, but they're not funded. They're not, there isn't a national imperative behind it. With the Soviets right from the get-go, they're going, they're going all out. The fact that the stuff shows up at different stages later down the road doesn't matter vis-a-vis -vis the intent behind it. So it's very clear Stalin, Stalin wanted an intercontinental capability right off the bat, and they were pursuing that. They threw everything they could at it, despite the fact their countries are wrecked because of the Second World War. Okay, And I could go on in a lot of more detail on that. They came up with all sorts of strange systems to try and get over here, but it was very clear right from the get-go. Okay, Jump ahead a bit when you get the Khrushchev. So and we're, my wife and I are wandering around the remains of abandoned uh, Soviet missile launch sites in Ukraine. And most of these aren't silos, like as we know them. They're soft launch pads, i.e. they're not underground. They're in small bunkers. They, they pull the missile out, load it up with fuel and fire it, right? So we, we investigated a whole bunch of these and I did some more work on it. And this particular system, they deployed over 700 of them. Now, they can't reach over here to North America but you can blanket Europe with 700 megaton yield warheads 
and it basically takes an hour or two to fuel fuel these things up at a time and and launch them but they've got them set up for salvo fire in groups of four now what's that for is that a deterrent <laughs> if it's supposed to if it's if if they're trying to deter uh, an attack on them well you put the stuff underground which they will do later but in the early days this stuff's all soft it's all on the surface okay so that leads to all sorts of other interesting questions like um, there's been accusations of overkill. Oh, the U.S. had too many weapons and blah, blah, blah. Well, sometimes you may have to hit these things two or three times to make sure they're dead mm-hmm. or else they're just going to keep firing, right? It's not like a silo. Silo, once, once it goes, it's gone. These, these systems are prepared to reload. So that kind of thing, you start seeing that they looked at it very differently from the way we did um, in, in terms of targeting systems and all that sort of thing. So um, what I'm working on right now should bring that dimension out. Now I'm going to take it as far up as I can. It's, it's, it's a pretty interesting story, and it's very difficult to research. So. Well, we're looking forward to that, but uh, moreover, we're looking forward to having you down here in, uh, in Ashland at the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum, visiting today with Dr. Sean Maloney, Professor of History at the Royal Military College of Canada, and he will be joining us Saturday, October 16th, for our Cold War Film Festival, again, the uh, the films that we'll be screening on Saturday, October 16th, uh, Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bond. That'll be at 1230, followed by Fail Safe at 215 on Saturday. And prior to that will be uh, our presentation and um, time that we'll be able to spend with Dr. Maloney. So there will be a question and answer session. We will, uh, we're working on having your book down here as well. So folks have the opportunity to pick that up. Sunday, October 17th. Uh, if you're still around, we maybe we'll see you again. Uh, Dr. Maloney, I know you got to get back up to the great white north, but we're hoping that maybe we'll, we'll have you around. 1230 is the uh, screening of Strategic Air Command and then 245, the Bedford incident for the Cold War Film Festival. And you can learn all about that at sacmuseum.org. One thing I'd like to point out is that for the Deconstructing Dr. Strangelove book, I could not have written that without the assistance of the museum and the people in it. Okay, big, I want to make that very clear. That book would not be what it is without the assistance of the museum and its staff. Well, we appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that you and Brian have the relationship you do, that we can have you down here. I think it just adds uh, dramatically to this Cold War Film Festival. Very excited to see this happen. Um, excited to have you down here. And um, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, we got to get people to come out and see it in, in, uh, in person here. We're, we're giving away, you know, this is, this is a marketing thing now. We're giving away too much of the goods. There's plenty to talk about. <laughs> There's plenty. Absolutely. Dr. Sean Maloney, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, right on. Take care. This has been the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum podcast. Email marketing at sacmuseum.org for more information, questions, and suggestions. Learn more about events, programs, and exhibits at the Strategic Air Command and Aerospace Museum at sacmuseum.org.